It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Six thirty, Chad. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at six on Six Thirty, Chad. Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on the voice of your Edmonton Oilers and Eskimos, 630 Chad. Well, of course, the Eskimos continuing with training camp on the brick field at Commonwealth Stadium, though today didn't go on for as long as planned. Head coach Jason Moss decided to end practice early. We have 17 practices before we play our first preseason game, and our guys have been working their butts off um, every day out here. We just got done with four hard practices back-to-back, and, you know, you could tell, I mean, as much as they're coming out here, they're giving us great effort every day. At some point, something's going to give, and, you know, we felt like, you know, if they will take two this day off and do it the right way and, and get some rest back, we'll have the next two days, which we go back-to-back again, we'll have some great practices. All right, head coach Jason Moss, more on the Eskimos on 630Ched.com. My name is Reed Wilkins. It's Inside Sports on 630Ched, and I'm pleased to be joined by one of the greatest Eskimos of all time. It is former kicker Sean Fleming. Sean, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Reed. How about yourself? I'm doing great. It's awesome to catch up with you. So, uh, you know, I, I reached out to you yesterday, and I said, why don't you come on? We'll talk about training camp and the grind of it. So I, and I didn't had, obviously had no idea Jason Moss was going to do that today. So are you thinking, why didn't a coach ever do that when I was on the team? Shut it down a little early. <laughs> it's, uh, it's happened on occasion before, but uh, for different reasons. If practice hasn't going well, uh, sometimes I'll call it early to send a message. So it sounds like... Uh, the opposite was the case today with uh, with Jason, and a smart move. Certainly, uh, training camp tends to be long uh, for a lot of the players, and, and uh, it's nice to get a little bit extra rest uh, whenever you can. All right. So now, do you have? I, I got to ask. I got to follow up. Do you remember a specific incident where a coach was so infuriated he just said, "Get off the field"? Or you're at liberty to uh, recall this because there's got to be something behind that. Well, there, there's been a couple. Uh, Ron Lancaster. Had, had uh, done it a few times um, while he was coach, and I think Danny Machocha might have done it once. And again, if practices aren't are going well, the efforts uh, not there, um, you can. I mean, there's two options: you can stand and yell as a coach and continue practice, or if you want to send a really strong message, you say, "Okay, we're calling it a day," and everybody head back in the locker room. Well, and I imagine, especially with with a veteran team, and you played on, on you know some veteran versions of the Eskimos, certainly 03 and 05, 05 especially, I would consider a veteran team that just knew how to win and did well down the stretch. Uh, and and I mean, you you spent most of your adult life playing pro football. There must have been a point where you're like, seriously, your yelling means nothing, right? I mean, <laughs> is there a point for a pro athlete where he's just like, I, you're just screaming at me isn't going to motivate me? Yeah, I mean, part of it is certainly if you have a veteran team, um, you don't need a need a coach uh, who screams and yells. I mean, typically the the veterans, the team polices themselves, and and uh, you know. But if you have a young team, uh, certainly that that can be advantageous. Every player is different on how they respond to uh, 
to certain techniques that, that coaches use. And you have to be, you know, as a coach, you have to be very versatile when dealing with individual players and, and try to figure out what motivates them. But uh, every, every team's different, every person's different. Sean Fleming joining us on Inside Sports. So, look, you were uh, an Eskimo from 1992 to 2007, three-time Grey Cup champion, uh, two-time CFL All-Star. You're, you're on the Eskimos' wall of honour, so I wasn't just flattering you when I said you're one of the team's all-time greats. I mean, you put in your time and you were a consistent performer. A- at what point for you, and maybe there wasn't this point, but I'm going to ask the question this way, at what point for you did training camp and trying to make the team improve yourself sort of lose its luster. What year did it become like, okay, I know how to do my job. This is just a bit of a grind. Well, I don't know if it, if it actually came to that point. Um, you know, everybody uses training camp uh, certainly to build up and get ready for the season. Um, kickers are, you know, and specialists are, are a little bit different. Um, but but I've, I don't think I ever got to that point. I mean, Every year, you've got to you got to shake off the rust and, and get back into the groove and and uh, improve. Uh, certainly, getting in heading into the season. So, uh, I always viewed it as a good opportunity to work on technique, uh, to get used to the snapper and the holder again, and and uh, just get familiar with uh, with the process. And I think everybody, every player is probably the same. Um, you know, you, you can train off season all you want, but until you get into that team environment and, and start running plays and, and getting your timing down, uh, training camp certainly uh, uh, integral part of that. You know, I'm glad you brought that up about the snapping and the holding because, I mean, as it looks right now, obviously things can change, but Daniel Bryan's been doing the holding after Jordan Lynch doing it for the last couple of years. How much was a, a new snapper and or a new holder an adjustment for you at, at the start of the year? I mean, a lot of people might say, well, th- this isn't it kind of just a repetitive process, but how much of a difference does it make to a kicker? Uh, I, I felt it, it made a big difference uh, just with confidence and timing. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's a very subtle thing, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, when you get used to one holder, the holder knows how you like the ball tilted, the, the timing down, how they put the ball down. There's There's lots of different things that, that uh, other people don't really see, but it certainly makes a big difference to uh, to the kicker. And, and I think uh, certainly with Sean White uh, having uh, the same holder for a number of years, it'll make a bit of a difference, and hopefully uh, they'll be able to work out any, any kinks that they have in the system. Um, but, but I think uh, practice repetition is important, and it goes back to my comment in training camp, uh, especially if you've got a new holder um, and a new snapper, you've got to get lots and lots of repetition. And you got to build a certain confidence uh, level in the guys in front of you. How do you think, if at all? I mean, you did both jobs most of, all of your career, most of your career, most of my career. Yeah, yeah uh, you know, Sean White's going to do both this year. That that's the plan. Grant Shaw's not around. Do you think that's going to be a big change for him? I think a little bit. Um, I mean, he's he's been a fantastic acquisition. Um, you know, he certainly. Uh, been kicking the lights out, a high percentage, accurate, and game-winning kicks. I think he's he's done an amazing job since he's been here, and uh, he's done it before. So it's not like this is new to him. Um, you know, it could have a bit of effect on him. I mean, he's you're going to be kicking, you know, uh, probably punting probably another hundred hundred ten times uh, this season. So that's uh, extra wear and tear on the leg. Um, you know, so I, I think the technique's slightly different. So. Um, you know, hopefully it doesn't affect him too much, but 
uh, you know, I still think uh, when he was doing both years back, uh, he was still a pretty consistent performer. So I don't expect to see uh, any of, you know, there might be a bit of a drop off, but uh, I don't think so. He's a seasoned veteran. Sean Fleming joining us on Inside Sports at 713. You know what? I got to ask you something. This this just popped into my head early last season. And I'm going to ask you because fans often ask me this, and I, I didn't feel I had a good answer. The Eskimos were doing a lot of cross-field punting, and I, I know you watch all, all or most of the games because mm-hmm. usually the, the theory is, well, punt it between the numbers and the sidelines so the guy hopefully has nowhere to go. They were trying these cross-field punts, and they never seemed to work very well. Okay. <laughs> what, what was the strategy behind are, are you trying to move the returner around or get the ball to bounce, or what's going on there? Yeah, so uh, towards the latter part of my career, we, we tended to to do that quite a bit but it was typically my call in the huddle um and you had to kind of pick and choose your moments but generally the reason why a special teams coach would call kind of across the field um punt would be first of all to to mess up with the the return team's um blocking scheme uh if you if you have a um, you know a certain um uh percentage where you're constantly be kicking to the sideline every time uh, you know, teams obviously know that, but if you throw in a cross-the-field kick every once in a while, it really screws up the blocking schemes. Uh, the second thing, too, is to throw the returner off a little bit, uh, keep him on his toes. Uh, you know, catching a, a punt while you're running across the field can be difficult, so it increases the chance of possibly a fumble. And the other thing, too, is when you're doing a cross-the-kick field, you're, you should line drive it so it gets on the ground as quickly as possible and it starts rolling all around a little bit. So it just throws timing off and it makes uh, makes the other team, um, you know, uh, not as consistent in their return game. All right, but I guess the key, one of the keys is there you got to have it bouncing around because if a guy can run up into it, then maybe he's off to the races, right? Yeah, that's part of the problem. You can't you can't let a returner. Uh, you know, the worst kick when you try to cross the field is actually not get it all the way to the other side of the numbers. It's it might go off the side of your foot and land in the middle of the field. And if that guy catches it on the run, um, it, the risk for a touchdown is really high. So the key is to really hit a low-line driver that maybe goes 35 to 40 yards and, and kind of bounces around a little bit. All right. I, I, you know what, Sean? I'm just going to improvise here because we got a text coming in from Dave to, to our line. He's, he's, he's listening. He says, guys, I understand, or he says, Reed, I understand you're asking Sean about directional kicking. Can you ask Sean how often, if at all, in a game, he punted the ball absolutely as hard and as far as he could? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty rare. Um, you know, the years when I started punting, um, we had some amazing returners uh, in the league, and, and so the league really started to transform into directionally kicking the ball. And even a lot of time in my career, I was asked to kick the ball out of bounds. You know, if they get it 35 yards but it's out of bounds, that's that's what the team wanted. And uh, then they obviously changed the rule where you couldn't kick the ball uh, out of bounds directly between the 20-yard the, the lines. And uh, so so the, the game's evolved a little bit. Um, but I think I think you're seeing, you know, uh, a lot bigger punters nowadays, stronger legs where they can just bash it away. And, and uh, direction punting, I think, is still fairly important in the league given the size of the field. But Certainly, uh, I was rarely called upon to just blast away. It was always get it to the sidelines or kick it out of bounds. Sean Fleming joining us on Inside Sports at 717. Uh, who's the most dangerous returner you ever kicked to? Or who's a guy where you thought, like, oh, man, i got to be careful with this one? 
Um, hmm, that's a tough one. Uh, well, I was lucky to have uh, Gizmo on my team. Right. So I, didn't to, I didn't have to worry about him for a number of years, but probably uh, Jimmy the Jet Cuttingham uh, was was a, a pretty strong returner, um, a guy we were always nervous about. And then one year, uh, Winston October, I think he was playing for Montreal. He was having a phenomenal season. So he luckily we, we ended up getting him uh next year when Danny Machocha brought him in. But I think in his heyday, Winston was a, a very good returner. What's it Just to change gears a little bit, what's it been like for you to see some of your former teammates going into coaching and, coaching and management? I mean, obviously Jason's now the head coach. Uh, you know, Ed was here for a long time. I know that was a tough day for you when, when, when he was let, let go. What's it been like for you to see some of the guys, though, that you were out there on the field with now take on, uh, on other roles, and specifically to see them in important roles uh, with the Eskimos? I mean, did you, did you see that development coming from some of these guys, or what's it been like watching them? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you you could tell, uh, you know, the locker room. You get a pretty good handle on the personalities and and uh, where you think people, you know, career-wise after football will go. And and I know that Ed was one, and Jason definitely. You could see uh, it, um, you know, that they had uh, certainly a, a great opportunity to go into either management or the coaching ranks. Uh, AJ Gas is another who's also coaching down in California. So it's it's great to see those guys because I know for a number of years the, uh, the CFL was recycling a lot of the same coaches around for years and years and it seemed like uh, you know uh, coaches would would pretty much coach on every single team in the CFL but it's it's nice to see new blood, um, different styles of offenses, uh, more aggressive uh, play calling and I, and I think uh, that has a lot to do with uh, with uh, former players now taking up. Uh, you know, strong positions in the organization, head coaches, um, you know, um, uh, uh, coordinators, whether offense or defense. It's it's been a good uh, good thing to see, and and uh, you know, even players that uh, we played against, uh, you know, like Orlando Steinar, for example, is having a you know will have a phenomenal career as a coach and hopefully head coach one day. All right, and I got one more for you here. And you were a popular player, so I'm not surprised that people are texting in. Daniel says, "Reed, can you ask Sean how good shape he is in now, and how long a field goal could he make if he had to?" <laughs> I can't even touch my toes. It's pretty sad when you sit in an office desk all day; you lose your flexibility. <laughs> I'd probably, I'd probably pull my quad if I tried kicking a field goal. But I, you know what? I try to keep in shape. Uh, I was doing triathlons for a couple of years after I retired, and. Uh, you know, still try to work out and at least keep in some semblance of uh, of shape. But I I probably couldn't kick a forty yard field goal right now. My uh, my quad would fall off. Well, I was going to say maybe you could kick a convert, but they moved the convert back. The old the old <laughs> yeah, convert, the twelve yard convert. That's right. <laughs> Sean, I hope we can do this again a couple times throughout the season because I always appreciate your insight, and I know Eskimos fans are always uh, happy to hear from you. And of course, I know they're proud too that you're one of the guys who's uh, who stayed in town. So thanks a lot for making time for six thirty, Chad. I appreciate it. Thanks, Reed. That is Sean Fleming. Check it in tonight. Intelligent guy. Always love talking to him. And, uh, you know, he kind of said he, he never had that negative attitude about training camp because he always looked at it as a time to, to tweak some things, make sure he was back in form. Uh, and, he, and he mentioned the importance of getting to know his, uh, his holder uh, and his kicker, or pardon me, his holder and his snapper, especially if they were new to those positions. Uh, thanks for the questions on the text line to 630-630. The phone number is 780-496-0063. It's Inside Sports on 630-CHED. This is Adarius Bowman from your Edmonton Eskimos, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630-CHED. Thanks.
Thanks a lot for tuning in. It's Inside Sports on 630. Chad, man, we've had a fun show so far. Harner Ryan Singh was on the show. Hockey night in Canada. Punjabi play-by-play voice from uh, Bourne with Tasquin. Grew up in Brooks. Then we had uh, Kale McCarr on the show, who is from Calgary, but plays for the Brooks Bandits in the AJHL. Likely to go in the top 10. Likely will be the highest player out of the AJHL ever selected in the draft. That'll be one of the many storylines to follow in Chicago in a couple of weeks. And we just heard from Sean Fleming, former kicker from the Edmonton Eskimos. Thanks to a couple of you who texted in questions for Sean during that interview. On the Crystal Glass scoreboard tonight, Crystal Glass for all your glass needs, visit crystalglass.ca. The Blue Jays play a little bit later, 8 o'clock start. They will visit the Oakland A's. It is uh, Boston leading the New York Yankees 5-2 in uh, their game tonight, and I got the game on TV, and they just took the uh, score down. So <laughs> that's why I'm not saying, that's why I'm stalling before I'm saying the inning. It is the bottom of the sixth. The Blue Jays, uh, five and a half out of first place in the AL East behind the uh, Yankees. We got the NBA back at it tomorrow. We got the NHL back at it on Thursday. Game five will be here on 6.30, Chad, starting at 6 o'clock. Sunday, 3.30 is the start of our broadcast for the Eskimos hosting the Calgary Stampeders. Kickoff at 5, Brickfield at Commonwealth Stadium. You would expect a lot of Eskimos uh, first stringers to play in that game. Then they have a short turnaround next Thursday in Winnipeg. So I would think some of the uh, more established guys, the Rileys of the team, will uh, either not be making that trip or going, but uh, being spectators for most of the game. Uh, Warren Mulvey on the other side of the window. Warren, as as you know, I've been enjoying a uh, reduced work schedule, as I like to call it, with the Oilers eliminated and inside sports pre- uh, preempted by uh, by hockey some nights. So I've been doing some read, doing some book learning. Oh yeah, as we like to call it back in Evansburg. <laughs> like you'd, you'd walk by the uh, the library at Grand Trunk High School and you'd kind of look in there sideways and you'd be like, look at them boys doing the book learning. And then we'd go out and try to light ants on fire with magnifying glasses. What a town. But it really is a great town. But uh, I'm, I'm currently in this book. I'm about two-thirds of the way done. And uh, it's called The Only Rule is it, is it Has to Work. And it is a fascinating book about a couple of guys who write for the website called Baseball Prospectus, obviously a baseball uh, website where they do a lot of the analytical stats and all that kind of stuff. And for the summer of 2015, they got to be uh, work in the baseball operations department for a low, low-level independent baseball team called the Sonoma Stompers in Sonoma, California, a four-team league. They just played a 78-game schedule, and they like there was a general manager and a, and a manager, but it was one of those where you know the general manager's signing guys to contracts, and then he's mowing the lawn or you know mowing the infield, you know before a game, and, and so they're all doing a bunch of. But these two guys, they, you know, the store, but basically they 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 got into being able to operate this team, and they wanted to apply a lot of the baseball you know analytical stuff. To it, as opposed to, well, we bat this guy third because the right fielder, you know, whatever. So they said, well, let's try this. They tried five-man infields. They tried more shifts and stuff like that. It's a very interesting book, and they met with. Imagine this. They met with a lot of resistance from some members of the organization. <laughs> no kidding. Including, including the manager. And But they're pretty honest. I, I mean, they totally blew it, identifying some players. Some of the stuff they did worked. They, where I am in the book now, they, so the season is divided into two halves. 
and the two uh, half winners play in the championship game. So they actually won the first half of the season, uh, despite having a lot of resistance to their methods by some key members of the organization. But if you're looking for a uh, summer book to curl up with by the Laker in the backyard, the only rule is it has to work. Sam Miller and Ben Lindbergh are the authors. We have a special guest in studio, the incredible story of Tim Buckland. He's going to tell you how uh, golf and sport helped him battle cancer and now how he helps other people who are facing cancer. That's up next, Inside Sports on 630 Jet. This is Mark Letestu from your Edmonton Oilers, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630 Chet. All right, thanks a lot for tuning in tonight. Inside Sports on 630 Chet. Another show tomorrow. We'll have Kelly Rudy on the program to talk about the Stanley Cup Final Game 5 Thursday. Penguins, Nashville tied 2-2. My guaranteed-to-be-correct prediction, not a guarantee, was Predators in 7. We'll see about that. My name is Reed Wilkins. Pleased to be joined in studio by Tim Buckland. Tim, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. All thanks right. for having me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming in. You, get, you, have an, you have an incredible story. Uh, if people are saying to themselves, who is Tim Buckland, don't feel bad. I mean, you're, you're, you're a big deal, but uh, you're, not, uh, you're not a famous athlete. For sure. But you have an incredible story, and that's, that's why we, uh, we wanted to have you on the show. And there's a lot of things we want to cover here. How old are you now? I'm 31. You're 31 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to dive right in with this question. Sure. Was there ever a point in your life where you thought maybe you wouldn't see the age of 31? Yeah, for sure. So, like, as we were talking before, I, when I was 18, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer, and that was, I was playing hockey. I was trying to go for Grant McHugh and the Griffins at the time. Um, and, yeah, I was playing competitive golf at the time, and that's really, that was my drive. So when that happened, it derailed the whole thing. Um, I had to take time off school and had to do that, that side of my life at that point. Um, and then I was cancer-free, which was great. So three years later, I was cancer-free, and then I was diagnosed twice when I was 21, which, again, derailed Jeez. things pretty quickly. So, yeah, I, there was a couple of times there where I didn't think I was going to make it to 31. So three times you've mm-hmm. been diagnosed with testicular cancer. You bet. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and you mentioned you were you know, hoping to play ACAC hockey, a very competitive golfer. Um, how, uh, I mean, obviously the, the sports wasn't the priority. Sure. Uh, you, you, but how much of a setback was this to your you know, athletic <laughs> interests and development at that? Yeah. Now, obviously a big one, but give me a bit of a yeah. sense of it. Yeah, it changes your perspective. It goes from trying to be the best hockey player, the best golfer you can be, to just surviving. So that really kind of changes where your, your focus is. And, you know, I was lucky because I was in such good shape as able to go through the treatments in a fairly well manner. But, uh, yeah, like it, it definitely changes the way that you look at life and what you really want to focus on. I mean, when you found out that the cancer had had returned, mm-hmm. um, I mean, obviously, I guess you knew physically what you were in for, but sure. but and I, you know, I was mm. t- talking to Kale McCarr earlier, and I always yeah. ask about the mental side of things. What did that do to you mentally to think, oh my God, I, I have to do this again? Yeah, that it's really tough going back. You know, when people go through it the first time, it's new and fresh, and you're just kind of scared through the whole process. When you have to go through it multiple times, you know what's going to happen. And I only went through chemotherapy one time, but that was more than enough for me. Um, but yeah, you, you go through four rounds of that, and every time you go back, you know how awful it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mentally, it's really tough to kind of go back to the same place you were. So so 18 was the first time you had mm-hmm. you were 18. So yeah. what was that recovery 
like how much did that delay whether it was school plans yeah. or sports plans yeah I, d- I took a full semester off from school okay. uh, which is why I didn't play for Graham McEwen. I played junior B instead which mm-hmm. is a lot of fun I played in Stony Plain for the Flyers um, but yeah like for recovery wise I went through surgery which took me out of training camp and that whole piece so I was pretty late to the to the game I played a lot of penalty kill and that's about it for the first season but mm-hmm. uh, yeah it, it definitely slows your progress for sure all right. What? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you see, so you had chemotherapy. Yes. Um, you, you know, I, I, a lot of people have been uh, affected by by cancer, whether they've had it or, or know someone who has had it. But how? I mean, how weakened were you given yeah. to the compared to the state of you being a pretty good athlete? <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those weird feelings where you kind of you're the same weight but you're totally different muscle-wise. So, mm-hmm. like, I I'm, can hit the ball fairly far golfing, and I would lose, like, 40 yards on my drives just because you lose all that muscle mass. So that was really tough, too. You're, everything you do is totally different than it was before. Was was the desire to return to the ice and to the golf course, mm-hmm. did that help you, and if so, how? For sure. So especially when I was going through chemo, I, w- I was diagnosed, like, in November, and I went through my treatment for four months, and it was right at the beginning of golf season, so I, bu- I was buying golf clubs and getting really excited about the year, and that's really what drove me through chemotherapy. So, yeah, that's really what I was focused on, is getting back, and I, I wasn't planning on playing any tournaments that year, but getting in, in shape for the following season. Yeah, it's all I could really think about, is getting back on the golf course, so I was out there as soon as the snow melted, so. Alright, <laughs> so then when you're, when you're 21, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you're, you're diagnosed, as you said, tw- again, tw- how far, yeah. twice again with testicular cancer, how yeah. far apart were those? Uh, about two months. So two- I had surgery and then I was cleared and then two months later Jeez. I came back and had more scans and bad news. So All right. So yeah. was was it, were you worse off that time, the second and third yeah. time through? Yeah. yeah, the third time for sure because it had spread. So it, it's called, it goes into your lymph nodes instead of going into your organs. So mm-hmm. they picked it up on the scans and I had, had treatment because of that. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and then how long was that recovery? Yeah, I, you know, like the actual treatment was about four months, but I would say it probably took me a year and a half to get back to a shape where I could do things like I used to. So basically, your schooling was derailed again. Yeah. Any athletic stuff that you wanted to derail again? I mean, I assume even you know at that part of your life, things are exciting. You're you're making new friends. Maybe you're dating <laughs> someone. I don't want to get too much into your personal <laughs> life, but I mean, yeah. socially, it must have been a lot of upheaval as, as yeah. well. So this the last time. I was going into my last year of my undergraduate degree and all my friends were done. So that was really tough. You have to go back for another semester and everybody you were friends with for four years is now gone and working and doing everything else. So you feel like you're lagging behind in your life a little bit. So, What kind of reaction or support did you get from, from teammates, coaches, people like yeah, that? Yeah, it, it's interesting because the coaches for sure are great and most of them had seen somebody had gone through cancer of some sort, but players, I mean, you're 18, 21, nobody really has. There's only about 7,000 Canadians that are diagnosed in that age range. Mm-hmm. So it's very few people that are able to actually step up and support you, which is one of the things that we certainly learned as you go along. But uh, yeah, the, the players themselves were great. They didn't know how to support, but they, they did as much as they could at the time. So. Tim Buckland joining us uh, in studio, telling the story here about surviving uh, cancer in his late teens and early uh, 20s and how sport helped him get through that. Mm-hmm. So you've been cancer-free 10 years now? Yeah, you bet. <laughs> but again, the fact that it, it, it came back twice, I mean, are you... 
uh, I mean, I assume you get regular scans and, <laughs> and, sure, and, yeah. and, and checkups. So there's another mental thing you have to deal with all the time, right? Yeah. Probably that what if. Or, or maybe <laughs> yeah. you don't. I mean, do you live with that fear? Yeah, the further you go out, the less you have that fear. Uh, first five years for sure, because it took three and then it came back. So that was always a fear of mine. But yeah, now that I've been out as long as I have, it's much less than it used to be for sure. All right. Now, Tim, we didn't just randomly pick a cancer survivor who also golfs to come on the show because there is more to your story than that because you haven't just gone through this uh, and battled and survived. You've made sure that that you continue to reach out and be involved in the lives of other people who are are, are battling cancer. Uh, Tell us a little bit about some of the work you have done and are doing. Sure. So when I was going through or just finished my chemotherapy i was volunteer at the cross for about four years and i helped patients go through that journey that i had gone through um really my passion was always the young adults so there's an age range between 18 and 29 to 39 depending on who categorizes it and those are the people that i felt needed my support the most Mm -hmm. Um, so i was working with a group called canadian partnership against cancer Uh, they just released a, a report called the system performance report that um, touched on a number of things that young adults go through. Um, so psychosocial, like we just talked about, that emotional piece was a huge thing that they pulled out. Um, the other thing that came out was uh, fertility. So for guys, it's a little bit easier mechanically to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, for females, there has to be such a lead going into your actual treatment that that was a major thing too. So yeah, I, I helped with that report and I've done a lot of work. I worked at the Canadian Cancer Society for a while, Alberta Cancer Foundation. Um, really, my, my goal in life is to help people with cancer. So I've, I've done as much schooling as I can to do that. See that 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 that's see I think that's a very special thing Tim because you you, you yourself face an awful circumstance and then I think maybe, maybe I'm wrong here but I, but I think a lot of people would or at least there'd be a thought for people to mm-hmm. say, well, I want to distance myself. That was horrible. <laughs> I, I don't want to experience, obviously you don't want to experience it again yourself, sure. but I don't want to be in that environment where people mm-hmm. are getting chemo or, 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 or struggling. What, what really prompted you to say, no, I want to continue um, you know, f- facing that mm-hmm. or helping other people face it? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a, a weird split with people at, at our age that go through it. And lots of people, you're right, don't want any part of it. And I completely understand. Uh, there's a select few of us that really want to get back and give back to the, the people that need that help. Um, I was always interested in, in biology and cancer. And so I'm a scientist by training. And that's, mm-hmm. that's really where I wanted to focus my support. And then I learned that helping people is also something I really like to do. Um, so both those pieces kind of came together, and that's that's really where my passion lays. There must have been some pain involved in that, though. I mean, assume you yeah. you befriended people that we lost. For sure, yeah. and that, that's really the hardest part, is you, you meet some wonderful people that go through much more difficult circumstances myself, and yeah, unfortunately, we don't have cures to every type of cancer, and yeah, that, that, that does happen, so... Did you meet any other athletes along the way? Uh, I've met a few, um, a lot of golfers, which is kind of shocking. I don't know why that's the case, but uh, uh, I met with Brian Mudrick, who works at TSN. So he has a golf tournament up in Boyle. And uh, yeah, he's one of my my good friends that uh, is also quite a good golfer. So yeah. There's a few of us. What was he? Because he was it lymphoma he had yes. a couple times, yeah, and it was I think pretty dire for him yeah, the second time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he had and lymphoma is one of those diseases that keeps coming back. So yeah, he went through it a number of times as well. But yeah, one of the people that stepped out the other side. All right. So mm-hmm. tell what, what are you up to these? You just finished some schooling, right? I did. Yeah, I just finished my MBA, a Master's of Business. So I, I convocate tomorrow, which I'm pretty excited. Oh, about. congratulations! I get the degree and then wear the gown and everything else. But uh, yeah, my goal is to work in in healthcare of some sort. I'm currently looking for a, a job. So, 
Well, there you go. Uh, Tim Buckland looking for a job. <laughs> yeah. You can call him now and do an interview. 7804960063. Tim, thanks for sharing your story. Sure. I want to talk a little bit more about to you, about it with yeah. you, and uh, we'll talk some golf and hockey as well when we get back. Inside Sports on 630 Chet. This is Mike Riley from your Edmonton Eskimos, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Chet. Your quarterback, Mike Riley, season starting for the Eskimos preseason on Sunday when they host Calgary 330 pregame show here on Ched. The game will start at 5. My name is Reed Wilkins. Pleased to be joined in studio by Tim Buckland, 31 years of age, uh, three-time cancer survivor, uh, hockey player, golfer, and you continue to be an outstanding golfer. Again, th- thanks, too, for telling your tale and, yeah, no problem. and, uh, and how you continue to reach out to cancer patients and, and how, how to help. I think a lot of people listening uh, appreciate that story. Uh, we'll lighten it up a little bit here with some <laughs> with some golf talk. Sure. You're a four handicap. Yeah, you bet. So you're very good. I will. Wow. If people don't understand <laughs> yeah. what handicap means, the lower the better. He's very good. Uh, and you have, uh, I mean, obviously you've golfed Edmonton and area. Yeah, Tons of courses, I would assume. Yes. Yeah. But you got to golf in Ethiopia? Yeah. Tell I, us this. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. I was over there as part of my MBA. We have, a, it's called the Capstone Project, and we go over there, and I did a business plan for a cancer center over there. But I was invited to play a tournament while we were over there, and Golf in Ethiopia is very different than golf anywhere else on earth. So they have, so around the green, if you think of like a berm, so like a, a ridge that goes all the way around the green because the greens are so fast and so hard, you can't keep the ball on them. So they have this like trap that keeps the ball so on the green. So you can't putt it all the way off yeah, the green. No. <laughs> yeah. I had like a 10 foot putt uphill and I probably pumped it like 30 feet past my first putt. It's so fast. This wow. one's like a nine or eight on the stimp. So yeah, really quick. Yeah, so, yeah, it was a really cool experience. Sorry, the other way, 14 on the stem. Okay. But, uh, yeah, really cool experience just getting to golf in that kind of place. So. Uh, I mean, because I think when a lot of Canadians think of Ethiopia, they think not well off. Sure. Uh, you know, I mm-hmm. know when I was a kid, and I I don't I think it's still not great there, but yeah. huge famines and all that uh, yeah. kind of stuff. Well, did you experience, see that side of it? Yeah, so, you know, when you think of, like, World Vision, that's where they, right. their focus out of is, was Ethiopia, and Addis Ababa is where we were. It's just the capital in Ethiopia. Um, yeah, so there's certainly pieces of that. We were delegates, so we're effectively in, in the fancy place of Ethiopia most of the time and protected, but, yeah, there's certain areas of Ethiopia that are very, very so yeah it was tough to see but we're glad we were glad we were over there to do some good yeah sounds like it for sure mm-hmm. so the golf so the golf the greens are just that fast because oh. it's dry is that yeah well it was their dry season okay and uh yeah it was, it was an interesting um so they have another rule in the fairway so it's kind of like our like winter rules where you get pick in place and you mm-hmm. get like a yard so they have that all year round where there's no grass so you get to pick it up try and find some grass place it and hit it from there so wow yeah. <laughs> that's yeah the ball goes a ton but yeah if you can find some grass to play off of for your next shot you're doing good so <laughs> okay and you golfed uh when were you in ireland Oh, I was in the uk in the uk so, yeah. sorry yeah i was in yeah britain so uh yeah i was there actually beginning of may um, yeah, I was doing another case competition as part of the NBA program, and I played the Belfry, which is where the Ryder Cup used to happen. They had four Ryder Cups there, so another amazing experience of golfing. So Was it windy? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm born and raised from Edmonton. I've never seen wind that actually impacts your ball that much. There's a par three. It's like I probably 210 yards, and you're hitting straight into the breeze, 
and I was probably 40 yards short, and I took two clubs extra. It was unreal how much the ball stops in the air with that kind of wind. So it was a fun experience. Yeah. Any other courses around the world you played, famous uh, ones? Well, I played uh, Country Club of the South, which is in uh, Georgia. And it's right by, not too far from Augusta, actually. I was down there for a, a tournament that uh, Mizuno sponsored. Okay. And that's where I got my sponsorship back in the day. Right. I ended up winning that tournament. Um, but yeah, that was, that's an amazing course to the, like, Usher's House is on that course. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that was He's a cool a musician, experience. I heard. Yeah. We were talking about vinyl earlier on the show. Uh, so what course is your is your dream course to play? Oh, you can fine. pick anyone in the world. I or would, you can pick three. Yeah, I would love to play Augusta. That would, uh, absolutely. Yeah, it yeah, has to be on the list. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to play from the back tees and just get destroyed on that course. <laughs> but uh, yeah, my goal is to play St. Andrews at some point, to go, go back across the pond and play there. And then... Um, yeah, those are the two main ones. I would love to play Pebble Beach as well. So, yeah, that would be, probably be my third. So you're, you're 31, so you've grown mm-hmm. up through an interesting time uh, mm-hmm. in golf. i got to do the math. So you're born <laughs> in 1986. Five. yep. 1985, okay, so you're going to turn 32 this yep. year. So... I mean, for you, is uh, was there someone pre-Tiger that you remember watching and admiring? Fred Couples is always my, okay. my favorite golfer just because his swing is so pretty and he doesn't, it just looks like he's not even trying out there and just shoots the lights out. So, yeah, he was definitely my favorite. But, like, John Daly's fun to watch. Still is, <laughs> See, right? <that's> <laughs> I'm glad you, because you, so you were born in 85. Yeah. Daly wins the PGA in 91 yeah. and, the, and at St. Andrews, the British Open in 95. Yeah. Uh, do you remember who he beat in the playoff in 95? No. I Constantino don't. Rocca. Remember he made that long putt to <laughs> yeah, tie yeah. on 18? So that, so you're old enough to remember Daly sure. in his prime, in if you ever day. really... His, <laughs> his, his prime in terms of golf. I think he had some uh, several primes in terms of his off-course <laughs> off uh, behavior. Couples, so without looking up, 91 Masters? Yeah, that sounds well, about right. Sounds about right. Yeah. Losing them one in there. Uh, Crenshaw won in there by yeah. or not by Steros. Um, Olathebel would yeah. have won in there, and then won again later in the in the uh, in the '90s. But then, so were you, uh, or are you still a Tiger fan? Because here's the thing for me, Tim. Mm-hmm. I never really cheered for Tiger Woods mm-hmm. because I thought in his prime, cheering for Tiger Woods was like cheering for the sun to come yeah. up. He's going to win. <laughs> the sun's going to come up. I, I, and it wasn't that I didn't want him to win, sure. but I enjoyed seeing other people challenge yeah. him. You know? I, I was always cheering for Mickelson just because he gave, right. it was like a fight, right? So yeah, it was always fun to watch. But uh, yeah, Woods was, yeah, you're right. It was like a given that he was going to win. And he was such an amazing golfer back in his heyday. Like the shot in the dark, that that shot, I love watching oh, yeah. replays of that shot. Um, yeah, so I, I didn't really cheer for him, but it's really tough now. He's kind of fallen well, off. Well, he's not really a golfer anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah. And, <laughs> it's a publicity stunt, so. <laughs> well, it's tough what uh, happened to him and obviously For some sure. of the decisions. And I do think the thing from last, I mean, I, I I believe he probably was on medication, oh, but yeah. it's still tough for him. Yeah. Tough to see him that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warren, what do we got for the, uh, I don't I don't know if you, throw those headphones on sure. there, Tim, so you can hear yep. Warren. What do we got for the early 90s Masters winners? How far off was I? Well, Couples was 92, so you're really close. Who was 91? Uh, hold on. <laughs> well, just put up list of Masters champions. Or just lie. <laughs> or just, just, be like, yeah, just be like, Gene Saracen. Uh, I don't think he won in 91 there. Uh, there, there weren't. What golfers do you like watching nowadays, current oh, guys? Jordan Spieth is a lot of fun. Uh, tough to watch him in the Masters last year, but uh, or the year before, I guess. But, uh, yeah, Spieth's a lot of fun just because his putting is so unreal. But Rory, because he can hit it so far, and Jason Day always liked. Uh, Adam Scott has such a pretty swing. I like yep. watching him. 
Um, yeah, J- Justin Don, uh, D- Justin Don. Oh, I did that wrong twice. Dustin Johnson. There we go. He's good. Yeah, he hits a ball like unreal. So it's. St- I mean, can, are, can you just pound it out like two eighty, three hundred? Yeah. Because I mean, that's just a dream for yeah, me. Yeah, I can clear three on occasion. I'm not a real big guy, so it's all sw- <laughs> I swing boat as hard as I possibly can and hope for the best. But uh, yeah, not consistent like those guys at all. How how many rounds a week will you play? Ideally, um, two to these three days. Yeah. These days, yeah. But when you were a teenager, before you oh. first got ill, were you golfing every yeah, day? Yeah, like thirty-six holes a day, pretty much. Oh wow. So. <laughs> okay, Warren, what do you have? All right, uh, we'll do what would ninety-one. Ian Woosnam. That was Woosnam. Okay, ninety-two was couples. The ninety-three must have been Ola Thobble. Uh Bernard Langer. Oh, longer. And then next you. year, Ola. Uh, however, you said that. Ola name. Thobble. Ninety-five. Crenshaw. Yeah. Ninety-six. Oh. Uh, no, not follow. Yeah, yeah Nick follow the third to come back against Norman. Yeah. Ninety-seven Woods, ninety-eight Olathabel again. Mark Mer- O'Mara. O'Mara ninety-nine Olathabel. Yeah, and then two thousand Woods. Uh, Singh VJ Singh then Woods two in a row. All oh, right, all right. Well, it was relatively close. About Singh actually VJ uh, three-time major champion. Yeah. Did he not win the PGA? And then did he win another Masters? Did Singh win the O four Masters? That was uh, lefty. Phil Mickelson in 104. What was Singh's third major? Uh, hold on. <laughs> he must have won. I'm sure he has three. He must have won two PGAs. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, I should. Mickelson was 04, 06, and 10. Anyway, I could talk. <laughs> yeah, two PGAs. Two PGAs for uh, for VJ Singh. Well, Tim, thanks for coming in. I, I mean, incredible story about you battling through cancer. And again, not just how you yourself were able to do it, but but how you were able to, to help other people. And, and you continue to want to be involved in that here and actually possibly make a career about it. Uh, are you on Twitter? Or you got a website yeah, or anything like that? Yeah, uh, Tim W. Buckland at, on Twitter. And yeah, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Okay. And, oh, I didn't even uh, ask you, what do you think of the Oilers season? Oh, it was great. Great season. I'm, I'm, this is going to sound very cliche, but I'm, I was actually really happy to not see them go against Nashville because I feel like Nashville would have hurt a lot of their guys. So <laughs> as sad as it is to not see them win the Cup, it was, was kind of nice to Who's see. winning the Cup? It's best of oh, three now. It's got to be Nashville. You're thinking Nashville. Yeah. I think I, I'm sticking by Nashville yeah. in seven. Tim, thanks again for coming in. Thank you very much. That is Tim Buckland. Great to get to know him inside sports on 630 Chet. Also tonight, you heard from Sean Fleming, former Eskimos kicker. You heard from Brooks Bandits, defenseman and top prospect for the upcoming draft, Kale McCarr. And you heard from Harna Ryan Singh, play-by-play voice for Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi. The producer of the show is Dave Campbell. The studio producer this evening, Warren Mulvey. We're back from 6 at 8 tomorrow. Kelly Rudy will join us, and we'll get the latest on the Eskimos training camp as well. More on 630Ched.com on the green and gold. Boston 5, Yankees 3. That's in the eighth inning. The Blue Jays and the A's are going to start in about 10 minutes. My name is Reed Wilkins. Thanks for listening to Inside Sports on Eskimos Radio 630Ched. Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad.